You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. On this episode, we're gonna be talking about a fitness-related tool that often treats us like a tool. We're gonna be talking about the scale. Is this the end-all, be-all biometric feedback for us to establish whether or not we're in a good position with our health and fitness? So we're gonna break down some of the, the science around that, but also understanding that the scale is one of the most viable and accessible tools in our culture to kind of keep an eye on where we are with our body weight specifically, because that's the only thing that it can really tell us is our body weight. How much mass are we carrying around here on planet Earth? This does not speak to the health of our endocrine system, the health of our nervous system and their integration, you know, our hormone production. Are we in a position where we're producing robust anabolic hormones that are building up our body that are helping to contribute to energy and healthy metabolic function? Or are we producing an abnormal amount of catabolic hormones like cortisol and other catecholamines that are breaking our system down too rapidly and creating an imbalance, you know, contributing to inflammation and things of the like that are then leading to more issues with our body composition. A scale cannot tell us what's happening inside of our bodies. It's just kind of an outside mass issue. Now, we have a mass issue with body weight in our country, for sure, and BMI, our body mass index. It's one of the other metrics that's used. It's not perfect, but it adds another layer of understanding to where we are as a society. And if we're just looking at this metric by itself, looking at body mass index, well, then that would tell us that almost 250 million United States citizens are now overweight or obese based on that metric. That number should be startling, but it's not foolproof. That's the thing. It doesn't tell us what our metabolic health is, but sidebar, our metabolic health is not very good here in the United States. In fact, a recent study published in the peer-reviewed journal Metabolic Syndrome and Related Disorders determined that only 12% of United States adults are metabolically healthy. That means 88% of United States citizens are metabolically unwell, metabolically unhealthy, and the scale does not tell the whole story. So it's what's happening again in our internal regions, what's creating the outpicturing of what we might see on the scale or body fat measurement. These are the hallmark things for us to focus on, not to say that the scale is the ultimate enemy, but there's new data that's now demonstrating that it can create a psychological turmoil where people are trying to battle their bodies and battle this number, and also this number creating this psychological sense of self-worth. And that's another issue that we need to deal with and to address. And so we're going to talk about that today as well. And what are some of the things that the scale might not necessarily tell us that can be improving our health and thus greatly increase our likelihood of changing that number on the scale without all the psychological distress and turmoil? We're also going to talk about one of the common body image concerns today that's known as cellulite. We're going to talk about cellulite. We're also going to talk about changing your training 
protocol, you know, what you're doing as far as exercise and movement based on the time of the month, based on what time of month it is. So being able to cycle sync and so much more. This is a really, really rich conversation that all of us can extract some value from, but this is ultimately about, again, empowering us, empowering our citizens and providing real, valid, clinically proven tools so we can get from where we are to where we want to be. And again, really, really excited about this episode. Now, in our conversation about metabolism, we always have to look at what are the foundational principles? What are the foundational tenets that drive metabolic performance within our bodies? It often revolves around things that are so simple that they're usually looked past, right? We're looking for this new fancy pants supplement or this brand new discovered nutrient and missing out on what are the things that actually allow human cells to communicate? What allows human cells to invoke the process of, quote, burning fat? How does it all work? Well, one of those foundational pieces is a word that often comes wrapped in controversy, and that is the word sodium, right? When we hear the word sodium, we often think of salt, but salt isn't just sodium, and sodium isn't the only type of salt. There's potassium salt, there's magnesium salt, but sodium salt is the one that is the most controversial in our society because it's often tied to issues revolving around blood pressure, for example. But what isn't often discussed and what is little known by the public at large is the fact that researchers at Harvard Medical School published a study in their peer-reviewed journal Metabolism finding that low salt intake directly increases insulin resistance in healthy people, in healthy people, not having enough salt, specifically sodium salt can create insulin resistance. You want to know one of the classic signs of insulin resistance is carrying around more belly fat. So this is a problem that starts to feed into itself. Right? So we want to have healthy metabolic function. We want to make sure that we are having adequate amounts of sodium intake. But we can find sodium abundantly in many foods. However, it's utilized for so many different processes that we have a new need for it today that we didn't really see. Even the soil that our food is grown in is often deficient in these key nutrients. So, you know, the end product that we're getting, we're missing some of these things. And when I say that sodium is used for so many different processes, not just for metabolic function, but this sodium potassium pump itself enables our mitochondria to be able to literally make the energy that's required for all the things that the human body does. It's a sodium potassium pump that is required for every single cellular function really in our bodies. But specifically, we're just talking about energy production, being able to oxidize fuels. If we don't have these electrolytes present, our body is severely handicapped in being able to do the jobs that bring about healthy human performance. So when I say every cellular process requires the sodium potassium pump, I'm talking about even your cognition, your cognitive performance, your brain health. Sodium is a key component in this domain as well. Researchers at McGill University found that sodium functions as a literal on-off switch. They call it a, quote, on-off switch in your brain for specific neurotransmitters that support your cognitive function and protect your brain against numerous diseases. So again, 
from your brain to your heart to your energy production in your body, sodium is a critical nutrient. And also, it's not the only one of these electrolytes that matters. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, this triad, this trinity are exceptionally important. And just to lean into magnesium really quickly, a fascinating study published in the journal Neuron found that magnesium is able to restore critical brain plasticity and improve our cognitive function. And so the list goes on and on in the different ways that these electrolytes, these minerals that carry an electric charge play an impact on our health outcomes. And for me, this is one of those places we really need to target today more than ever. I'm a huge fan of electrolytes, but making sure it's not coming along with unnecessary sugars and additives and artificial colors and all this nonsense. Just the electrolytes we need in the right ratios. And this is why I'm such a huge fan of Element. That's L-M-N-T. I actually just had some before this episode started today. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model and you get to try Element for free. They're going to send you a free sample pack right to your door. All you do is pay a little bit in shipping, but they're going to send this to you to try for free. Take advantage. This is a limited time offer as it stands today. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model. Get your hands on some Element today. And on that note, let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled, Just What I Was Looking For by Stoney. I love this show. The health and fitness tips are so informational and understandable. I also am glad for the recommendations provided. Let's go. Thank you so much for leaving that review over on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate it so much. If you yet to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for The Model Health Show. Also, if you're listening on Spotify, please leave a rating for The Model Health Show. It means so much. On that note, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Our guest today is nutritional therapy practitioner, Noelle Tarr. She's also a best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of the Well-Fed Women podcast. In addition, she shares so much incredible information over at her health and fitness site, coconutsandkettlebells.com. She's one of my favorite people. She's just an incredible voice of reason and of empowerment. She's helped so many people. And I wanted to bring her on today to talk about this new transition as people are coming out of these pandemic times and they're wanting to get in shape. You know, a lot of folks kind of took a big time shoots and ladders spiral right downward with their health and fitness. And they're kind of coming out of this and looking at what can I do to turn this situation around? And I want to make sure that people aren't leaning into the typical misinformation that tends to have people getting further and further away from their health goals. So I was really excited to connect with Noelle and to bring her on for this episode today. So let's jump into this conversation with the one and only Noelle Tarr. First of all, just thank you so much for, you know, um, being a, a voice of reason <laughs> throughout all of this madness and, um, you know, just continuing to empower people. You know, there's been so much disempowerment, obviously, yeah. and a kind of a dial turn to victimization here. And you always kept turning things back to, you know, just what you are capable of doing. And also that we're not missing anything. That's another big thing that's been kind of driven into our psyche. You're, you're not enough. Your immune system is not enough. Mm. You know, your body is not enough. And so it's just always been great to, you know, to be able to 
uh, tune into you, listen to your voice, read what you're, you're, what you're writing, your posts. I love it. You have no idea. Like I have so many of your posts that are saved. Oh, and every now and then Sean, like I'll share that. it. Yeah. So just thank, thank you so you. much. I appreciate that. Sometimes it feels like you're speaking into the void. So I really do appreciate <laughs> that because especially when you're going against the grain and especially with today's, you know, like what we are doing, you know, we're podcasting, we're on social media and all those things. And sometimes you put all your effort into like, this is going to change people. And, you know, it's I'm not selling you an easy button. I'm not selling you, you know, f quick and fast tips. And so it, it, it sometimes it feels like you're you're just you're not it's not hitting. But um, then, you you know, you get messages like like that. That's so helpful. Or, you know, you get DMs from people that are like, you changed my life. Like I've, I was able to get out of the negative space that I am in, which I don't take credit for that. I just take credit for like telling people a different way of doing things. And then they are able to take that and change their own life. Um, but, you know, hearing about people getting their health back and their fertility back and all these things because they decided to not listen to the narrative that is so popular in our culture um so so that's really rewarding but i appreciate yes. it <laughs> you just said it though it's like speaking it to the void like i'm in yeah. here in my studio it's just me and my guys and right you know i don't see the the, the people right in front of me and so i just yeah. got back from speaking at this event a couple weeks ago in mexico and so this was my first event in the last couple of years to actually be live and be on stage and to mm. to see people and so Literally every turn that I made, every time I went to, you know, go to a restaurant there at the resort, someone was coming up to me and sharing just how much the show has impacted them the last two I years. The thing that I was hearing the most was like, you really helped me to maintain my sanity. You know, yeah. you helped me to feel like I wasn't crazy and to maintain myself, my sense of sovereignty. And so speaking into the void, <laughs> once we get into these com communications and, and have these connections, you yeah. get that feedback. It is important. Because now I just feel like taking things to another level. And so, but being on that, I know that a lot of people there were like, they were hitting the gym to get ready for their Mexico, you know, swimsuit. They were, you know, doing the dieting, the whole thing. Right now, a lot of people seem to be really energized to lose their, quote, COVID weight or their quarantine 15. Right. But with that comes the typical ineffective means that people tend to turn to to get healthier. And so this is the reason I wanted to have you on because again, you're somebody who brings perspective and a voice of reason. And you're not like, here, take this skinny tea and all your magical mm. dreams will be, you know, come true. And so one of the things that I love that you talk about, because what we're doing is we're looking to stack conditions for our health and weight loss or, you know, uh, changes in our body comp composition can be a, an outcome. But let's start with this. Let's talk about mental health. Because one of the things you've been talking about recently, and just not just recently, but it's been been a continued thing you you put attention on, is that our mental health matters more than the number on the scale. Mm -hmm. So let's dissect that a little bit. Yeah, I want to be clear too. Like, I don't think like wanting to change your body is wrong. I think a lot of people when they hear, "Oh, you don't you don't like you don't think weight loss is the ticket," they assume that you somehow don't you think it's wrong for wanting to change your body it's it's not wrong it's not wrong to want to get healthier what i think the problem is in our society at large and really the the diet and the fitness industry is they have we as a society has really equated 
losing weight with health improvements and your health is in your weight. And for women in particular, it's become your, and for men in a different way, but for women, it's always your worth is in your weight. So in your worth is in your ability to control your food and control your exercise and get down to a smaller size. And I just think this is, you know, for far too long, the fitness industry as a whole even has really defined health by can you get rid of your love handles? You know, it's, it's all about aesthetics and it's all about can we move the number on the scale? And, and for that reason, we have so many women who spend an enormous amount of time thinking about how can I get the number on the scale to go down? And you know this, I know this, there are many things that you can do that do not improve your health that will move the number on the scale, just like there are many things that you can do that will improve your health that doesn't move the number on the scale. So it really isn't about when, we, when we're so hyper-focused on the scale, it's about, you know, how can I get that number to move? And a lot of women, as a result, I was this person. This is what I did all throughout my high school and and college and even early 20s. I prioritized things that would get that number on the scale to move because I believed that I needed to be a certain size or certain weight. And I, I thought to myself, you know, if I could just get to this weight, then I would finally be healthy and I would finally be happy. We put so much like weight, pun intended on goal weights. And I, and I really think, I know I saw my own health deteriorate and I've seen this for so many clients and so many women, your health, so many women have, we've seen their health deteriorate because they are so focused on this number on the scale. So I, you know, what's the alternative is to really put your focus into what are the things that are important to you that are going to improve your health? Um, And I know we'll talk about that in a second. But the other problem is so many women, you know, it's not just about weight loss. It's like this idea that you need to be a specific weight. So I know a lot of um, women can probably relate to this. And I've talked a lot about this on Instagram, which is like, we all have this number in our head. A lot of women do. They think that they, you know, they, if I could just like, I used to be that weight. And if I could just get there again, like I would, I would be healthy. I would be happy. And so every day women wake up. They get on the scale, which, by the way, your body fluctuates. That's normal. That's supposed to happen. Like, no body is static. Your life changes from day to day. Your hunger changes from day to day. Your stress changes from day to day. So, you know, life has seasons, all these things. But for some reason, we believe that our bodies should be the exact same weight down to a pound every single day. Like, and if and if we gain a gain a pound or we aren't gaining or we aren't losing weight, like what we're doing is not working. Can't tell you how many times, you know, clients have come to me and said, well, I, I feel better and like, you know, I'm, I'm doing the things, but I'm not losing weight. So it's, it's just, it's not working. Mm-hmm. And that couldn't be further from the truth. But a lot of women have this number in their head and it's typically a number that they were in high school or, you know, college, which by the way, when you're in high school, you were like a child. Um, and they don't recognize, like we've completely removed this like actual our life circumstances from how we evaluate our health. So like back in the day when you were a a high schooler or, you know, even a young adult, like think about what your life was then and what you're going through now. Now, you know, for let's take me as an example, like I've had children. I have a stressful job. A lot of people have 
trauma they're dealing with. They're, you know, our parents are getting older. They're, you know, we're dealing with death. We're dealing with children who have disability. Like we're dealing with all these things. So to think that your body needs to be this exact same static weight or somehow that it should be the weight that you were when you were, you know, a, a high schooler or, you know, in college is just false. It's not, it's not an accurate assessment of health. And so, you know, moving forward, I always want people to be able to have, when you're able to set aside and let go of this like mental headspace of getting on the scale every day, thinking, beating yourself up, feeling shame because you are, you know, you're, you're not where you think you quote unquote should be, which that's another, you know, I- issue altogether. Um, you're kind of giving real estate away, really valuable real estate, by the way, to something that is arbitrary. That's something that doesn't necessarily matter, that doesn't necessarily define your health. So when we can drop that, oh, I've, I've got to, I've got to, you know, really get my, I've, I've got to lose weight. And what's my weight today? And did I lose weight or did I gain weight? When that defines your day and you're giving your, your mental, like your brain that's, or your mental and emotional health, that space to like, that free space again, you get to make decisions about what are right for your health, like based on what your body needs. So if you had a really crappy night, right, like you didn't sleep well, instead of getting up and saying, got to get up and run because the number on the scale still is the same or the number might, you know, I gained a pound. You don't have to do that anymore. You can get up and say, instead, I'm going to make some different decisions for my body because I didn't sleep well. So what's going to serve me today? Maybe it's going for like a short walk. Maybe it's sleeping in, you know, Um, you know, and so we get to make decisions for our health based on what's going to serve my body in the present today based on not just the season of life I'm in, but what what's going on this week? What's my stress level as opposed to what's going to move the number on the scale? Yeah, I love that so much. And I don't think there's a there's a device that has caused so much mental turmoil and suffering than a scale, you know, and tying our identity to that thing. And I love how you're tying it back to our ideals getting getting planted when we're in early education, for example, when we're in high school or college or whatever the case might be. And typically what creates suffering is this this schism between our life conditions and our blueprint for what things are supposed to be. Like we all have this cognitive blueprint, like my weight should be this. Mm-hmm. And when your life conditions don't match that weight, it creates suffering, right? There's a tension there. And it could be, again, it could be a healthy tension, but odds are because of this arbitrary number or this number that doesn't actually tell the tale of are you healthy or not, are you well or not, it can create depression or anxiety or obsessive behavior, obsessive compulsive behaviors to try to get your, your life conditions to match up to your blueprint. And so oftentimes today, especially, we need to make an alteration to our blueprint. Our life conditions, if we're taking care of ourselves, if we're eating real food, if we're moving our bodies, if we're having healthy relationships, those life conditions are fruitful and they're going to bear out positive things for our health. But if we just focus on that number, we're really missing the point. Mm. And so, yeah, just to, to kick it back to you on this, when, when that number isn't telling us, giving us the feedback that we want, what have you seen? as far as you know, the people that you've worked with, the people that you've talked to, and how much turmoil that creates for them psychologically? 
Yeah. Um, it's so interesting, actually, because I, I think people have a huge disconnect between like what we think about mentally and and how stress and mental and emotional stress actually impacts our physiology. Yeah. So I did a little poll recently and I said, what is stress? Is it physical or is it mental? Now, I think you and I know and a lot of your community knows stress is anything that, you know, it's very physical. It's it's our body responds. You know, we have a very real physiological response to stress. It can be a lot of things. It can be under eating. It can be, you know, inflammation. It can be poor diet, all those things. That's stress, right? But a lot of people still have this misconception that stress is mental. Almost like 90% of people voted mental. It was a trick question, by the way. It's, you know, it's both. Um, but uh, almost everybody voted mental because they think, oh, stress is just what's what I'm thinking. It's in my head. But they don't make this connection that the stress that you experience in your head changes your physiology. That is a stressor that can actually cause inflammation that can cause, you know, uh, a chronic cortisol production, which therefore then can impact every other hormone in your system. Like it, it can lower progesterone. It can reduce your fertility, like all those things. So if you are spending most of your day, maybe not even most, let's just say your morning, you start the day getting up, weighing yourself, you see a number again that you don't think you quote unquote should be, that you're not, you're not feeling it. You're just like, oh, I wish I could see that. You, you somehow, you only think that, that you're, you're progressing if that number is going down and that number is not going down. That's how you're starting the day. You know, you're starting and then you, you go in front of the mirror and you beat yourself up in front of the mirror and you're kind of picking apart little things about yourself. That carries with you throughout the day. That mental and emotional stress is, is stress on your body. It's, it's a little cortisol. It's a little bit of frustration. It's a little bit of depression. It's a little bit of anxiety and worry. And so then those feelings about yourself carry into the rest of your day and what you're doing. So it, it, it impacts what choices you're making with food. For a lot of women, it's, okay, I'm not going to eat uh, you know breakfast. Maybe I'll just skip it. Or I'm going to have an extra coffee as opposed to like fueling my body. It's mm, I'm at the gym. I'm going to do a little bit extra work. And then you get to the gym and you look at yourself and you're like, oh, I didn't lose weight today. Like, I, I you know, gosh, I, 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 I still look bad, you know? So it's all these. It's not just, oh, getting on the scale and looking at the scale and feeling bad about yourself. It's laced throughout your entire day, which therefore impacts your not just your your life experience, how you're feeling about yourself, but also your your physical health and then the choices that you make thereafter. That's why, you know, when I get clients to to remove the scale from their life, look, I'm not I don't think it's terrible. Like I if you want to use the scale and it's like your comfort and you feel like, oh, I, if I don't use the scale, like I'm going to lose control. Like that's a whole other issue of in and of itself. Right. It's it's sometimes people like to use that as as a marker. That's fine. Ideally, you would get that out of your life so that the other biomarkers of health, the other things that we know are more concrete are more important to you will be able to take shape and you'll be able to like actually intuitively follow those and feel those. Like, for example, you'll be more aware of your sleep quality. That's an incredible biomarker of health that a lot of us don't track. When you have crappy sleep, 
something's probably going on, right? Like whether it's your physiology, whether it's your health, whether it's your stress. So we get to tune in. That's one way that I tune into my health is like, how's my sleep? And if I have a really, if I can't fall asleep or I'm, I'm waking up in the middle of the night, like I know I need to change some things because my body's being exposed to stress. How's your energy levels? Are you feeling better? Like, do you have fatigue? Are you, do you, are, how's your blood sugar regulation? Do you have that 3 PM crash? If I'm feeling shaky, like, Hmm, something's off. Maybe I need to drink some electrolytes or maybe I haven't fueled properly today. So being able to remove the scale allows us to get in tune better with our bodies and say, okay, uh, I'm trying to evaluate here. Like, how do, how do I feel? How, like, what does my body need? And you can actually do that as opposed to fight your body constantly, which is what happens when we put too much focus on the scale. Yes. You just said it too. Our bodies are constantly giving us feedback and we're often focused on the wrong thing instead of paying attention to all this innate feedback. And one of the things I want to make sure I'm so glad you did this. I didn't ask you to do this. You pivoted right into the thing that I was going to get to, which is how stress, because I'm talking about the scale causing mental anguish, but our mental anguish can cause disruption to what we're seeing on the scale. It can totally mess up our biology. So much so, this meta-analysis, this was published in JAMA, right? Journal of the American Medical Association, one of the most prestigious journals in the United States. It was JAMA, JAMA Internal Medicine. And they noted that upwards of 80% of all physician visits are for stress-related illnesses, stress-related diseases, which is essentially all manner of disease. But we put stress into this very strange box. Like like you said, it's a mental, we think it's mental, but it is physiological. It's a biological response. There's a mental and physical component. Those stressful thoughts that you're having is changing the chemistry in your body instantaneously. Mm -hmm. It's changing the hormones you're producing, the neurotransmitters, it's changing your digestion, it's changing your entire cellular function. And this isn't to put us in a state of neurosis about it or fear. This is to be empowered because your thoughts matter, you know, and you have the ability to choose your thinking, you know. And so often, again, we're, we're, we're steered towards thinking and being obsessed with stuff that matters very little instead of the things that are the big movers in this situation. And so to point this all back, and I want to ask you about this next, let's talk about some of the things that can improve our physical and mental health that don't necessarily translate to changes that we might see on that device. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, to take it back to what you love to talk about, the first is obviously sleep. So <laughs> improving your sleep quality and the amount that you sleep is can significantly improve your health. I think somebody I know wrote a whole book on that, so I don't need to necessarily dive, dive into all of that. But, you know, when we're thinking about, gosh, what am I doing before bed? Like that's that's one of the things that I've really had to look at and I really get clients to look at is okay, how stimulated are you before bed? What what, you know, are you stimulating your nervous system? Are you wearing blue blockers? Are you on your phone? Are you scrolling social media? Are you working? Like all of those things disrupt your circadian rhythms. So n- not just trying to get to bed early, but also really focusing on quality. Second, I, I'm just trying to prioritize. I think the second would probably be getting outside more and getting some sunshine as I'm looking outside at the the beautiful weather right now, you know, I think so many people talk about getting out into nature and we're like, oh, nature. But 
you know, we as humans were designed to like engage with nature and the sunshine and plants and garden. And I can't tell you like getting your hands in the dirt is <laughs> there's beneficial microbes in, in that dirt. And so, you know, we're supposed to be outside. We're supposed to be getting good vitamin D. There's a reason that low vitamin D and, and vitamin D deficiencies are correlated with chronic disease. Uh, the second thing, or this now we're going to third thing, I would say probably managing your stress. Now, this is not sexy. Uh, people don't like talking about managing their stress because it usually means that they have to say no, which will be my fourth thing, saying mm. no. But I think when we're, we have a society that is incapable of, we have a ton of stress being input into our lives and people don't know how to manage it. And managing it really is a collective you know, variety of things. It's being able to be in tune with our body and what it needs, which goes back to, you know, eliminating the scale as a biomarker of health and really focusing on other things. But, you know, being able to meditate, take time away, we're always connected now as a society. And I really think that it's just totally degrading our mental and emotional health and our ability to manage stress because previously when we'd feel stress, maybe we'd go outside, we'd talk to a friend, we'd walk around like, you know, I was a kid in the 80s. We didn't have a whole lot to entertain us. And we had a lot of downtime. We had a lot of time to be bored. And now nowadays, it's like people are, we can't take a second of mm. boredom. We're on our phones. We're scrolling, you know, e everywhere we go, everything we do, we're in the car. You know, you see kids get off the bus nowadays. Every kid's getting off the bus, looking down at their phone. Mm, yeah. And so we've collectively as a society just lost the ability, I think, to disconnect and also do things like, meditate and um, even exercise, prayer, whatever it is that you need to do to kind of have that moment away and process is is really important, you know, managing the stress. Fourth thing I will say is saying no. We live in a in a society that celebrates, man, it celebrates productivity. It celebrates the hustle. It celebrates, you know, what what are the things that you're producing that you're doing? And for women in particular, I've seen, I, I know you've probably seen this shift too, Sean, but for women in the last few years, I have just seen my community feel overwhelmed with the amount of pressure put on them. You know, women all of a sudden had to school their children from home when they didn't, you know, trying to get them to look at a screen all day. They are supposed to have like a really great side hustle, successful business. Um, you know, take care of the kids, make sure they're cooking healthy meals, make sure they're not, you know, killing the world and, you know, not participating in, in all these things that, you know, oh, sustainability and all, like, these are all good things, right? Uh, be involved with a charity, keep up with social media and all the things that social media wants you to be posting about, like getting a, a picture of your, your children all coordinated. Now, look, I do that. So, but like, you know, in coordinating clothes and post it on Easter, like all these things, there is so much required now of the modern person, but especially of women. And women are much more sensitive to stress in general because we have a circadian rhythm, uh, um, an infradian rhythm where, you know, we, our hormones are kind of constantly fluctuating and stress really impacts our hormones in a different way. And so you've got to learn to say no. We have got to learn to say no. You've got to look at what you value as a person. And this goes back again to the scale and weight. What's valuable to you? This is what really was my aha moment. I had to take a step back and say, 
Noelle, what, what do you care about? Because right now it seems like all you're trying to do is please all the other people in the world. All, like You're trying to please your high school boyfriend who dumped you because you didn't have six pack abs. So now you're trying to get six pack abs because why do you even value who like those people that you're trying to please? Because if not, you got to move on. You've got to do something else with your life other than this, because this is all you're spending your time on is trying to get to a smaller size and get a six, get six pack. So I think we have to really as a society or just as individual people take a step back and say, what do we value? What's what's important and valuable to me? And then pursue that. The last thing, which I I think a lot of women probably are struggling with, I know a lot in my community is you've got to eat enough. And we've talked about this um, on on other podcasts, Sean, but many women, because they get into this trap of I've got to lose weight, I've got to reduce my size, I've got to move that number on the scale, they end up not eating enough, which subsequently means they're not taking in enough nutrients. So if you're if you're going to have nutrient deficiencies, I mean, we could name so many of them, magnesium and vitamin D and fat soluble vitamins and protein. Like when you're deficient in these nutrients, your body's not going to function properly. You're especially not going to have your fertility, estrogen, progesterone, all that stuff. A lot of women lose their period, lose their cycle when they're not eating enough. That's that's not like it's not something to ignore. That is that is a vital sign. Um, And a lot of women struggle with metabolic function with their thyroid health because they're not eating enough. And it's really because our society has worshipped weight loss, controlling your food, making sure that you're not eating too much in quotations, and you're you're cutting your calories. We obsessively track, we think that we have to be in such control. So we obsessively track everything that comes into our bodies. And we think that our bodies need to eat the same amount of calories every single day. No crazy to me. That's absolutely crazy, especially considering women in the second half of their cycle, you actually burn up to 400 calories more because of progesterone rising and your body temperature rising. Women's, your metabolism actually burns more calories in the second half of your cycle, yet we fight it and we think, oh, we've, what's a special trick I need to do to like make sure that I'm not eating more food or more carbohydrate in, in before my periods? Like, just eat. You need mm, you need those calories. Yeah. That's okay. You can eat. Um, and so, yeah, I think eating enough would would probably be the last one. The the actual last one is exercise, but we'll I know we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. But yeah. even that, you know, where do those cravings come from? You know, when you're on a certain part of your cycle, that that we've got these memes about, we've got these societal jokes about. No, your body is giving you feedback again, mm. and we can we can make good choices in those moments, but. If you already have this cognitive barrier where I'm supposed to be eating like I'm five years old or, you know, maybe seven, that's my caloric intake in order to get to my goals. What's going to happen is there's going to be some, there's going to be some disruption to your metabolism overall. It's going to suffer. And one of the biggest things that happens when we are deficient in these key nutrients, deficient in protein, deficient in eating enough calories, but this is not to say not being in a caloric deficit is, is not going to help you to lose weight. But what are you doing to your biology overall? Because one of the big things that happens is you lose muscle. Your mm-hmm. body will use your muscle tissue as fuel. You know, this really interesting process, it's, it's another one of those things that's a stress response as well. Cortisol is very good at driving your body to break down your muscle tissue and turn it into glucose, right? Gluconeogenesis. Mm-hmm. Just as this kind of stress response, because 
if you're not eating enough, your body's like, listen, this person, we've got to make sure that we survive. We've got to, muscle is expensive. It's very energy active. Let's, let's shed off some of this, store more fat so that we can keep this person alive because there must be a famine because mm -hmm. this person is not eating enough. Like that's how we're biologically wired. Today, it's different. Like we've got, we're surrounded by food 24 seven, but this is a new, this is a brand new phenomenon. And if you look at the results societally and you look around and see what are we doing as a result of having this access, now far more people are dying from overconsumption than not eating enough. And it's a strange thing that's just happened in the last couple of decades. And so, but we don't have to be victims of this and wait around for the data to come out conclusively, right? Even though it is pretty conclusive at this point, we can start to participate. So that's one thing. And also I wanted to mention this too, because you talked about this, <laughs> he was like, oh, nature, it's so real. Like, I know, it's I know. so real because it's just, it seems like this very, you know, kind of a quote hippie thing. Like, you know, you're going to go, go outside, get grounded, put your feet in the, oh, <laughs> this is how we evolve. Like we, yeah. this, even this concept of indoors and outdoors, like this is some new shit. We were a part of nature. And even when we're making things that are quote indoors, it's still, we're making stuff from the environment. Like humans are making stuff from nature, you know, but we cognitively disconnect ourselves. And so what all of these things that you hit on, sleep quality, uh, nature and exposure to, you know, sunlight and, and fresh air, managing stress, being able to say no and manage our own psychology and our own time mm -hmm. and eat enough. These are all things that our genes expect from us. At the end of the day, these are things that genes expect from us. And this is another thing is exercise. So you knew we were going to talk about this because, you know, one of the great things about, like, I love how you put stuff in, you actually dictated and actually put into words, things that I might talk about or things that have been kicking around in my mind. I've been telling people this for so long, but you said it in such a succinct way. But let's talk about the benefits of exercise, like in the real world. We tend mm -hmm. to think of exercise like that's the way to get that six pack. But what are the real benefits? And this is the crazy thing, again, that you, that you said, why sometimes skipping a workout is actually the best choice to make. Yeah. Yeah. So controversial. Um, <laughs> never, the, the never miss a Monday. It's like, yeah, I'm going to miss a Monday if I need to. Thanks, though. Um, interestingly enough, I came across this, this data maybe like five or six years ago. And I found it to be pretty compelling. I didn't realize how compelling it actually was for people to hear this. And it was essentially a study, it was out of Cambridge that was that said and the conclusive you know, result was exercise improves your health, whether you lose weight or not. And people were like, what? Like, this is amazing. And essentially what the study was showing is that if you have a BMI that's in the overweight category, and you start exercising, you start moving your body, you start strength training, whatever, and you don't lose weight, you still have significant and profound health improvements. And they, the study also talked about how people in the you know, normal BMI category, many of them who are sedentary, I think it was like 30% of people in the normal BMI category are actually unhealthy. How do they know that? They, they looked at their other biomarkers, not just their weight. So they looked at things like their inflammatory markers and, you know, what their blood pressure, cholesterol, insulin sensitivity, all of that stuff. So we know that if you just actually, you know, 
And I will say this, I don't want this to turn people away, but like exercise is actually kind of a crappy way. If you're just going to lose weight, you're like, I'm going to start exercising. Like not the best idea. If you really want to like move that number on the scale, exercise actually improves your body composition. It improves your health. It gets you stronger. But for a lot of people, when you start growing muscle mass, like that's not going to positively influence the number on the scale, but it does positively influence your health, your metabolic function, all of those things. And yes, it obviously can if you, if you know, I think of weight more as as a side effect, not necessarily the thing that is causing the problem, if that makes sense. So yeah, if your body's getting healthier and you, it, you're naturally kind of, you, your body will naturally be where it needs to be weight wise and, and exercise can play a part in that. But um, overall, it's not the best like weight loss strategy just because you're building muscle, you're getting stronger, which is which is a good thing. So exercise, um, where to even start? Let's talk about death. So extra, like exercise. Transition alert. Yeah, <laughs> no, like let's just talk about the number one thing that we're all thinking about dying. Exercise improves your mortality i think it reduced mortality by 27 percent was like the latest research that i saw and even when you do exercise in like low like very low activity levels it's been shown to improve your life expectancy so do we need to say more than that yes we do but like that's huge like every time i look at the data on exercise i'm always like even more excited about it because it's just like you want you want something that's going to like positively improve everything in your life it's exercise and strength training essentially so um let's talk about respiratory function this has been you know pretty popular in the last i don't know two years when we're talking about anaerobic and aerobic function essentially that is your lung capacity your heart the strength of that your endurance and essentially your speed so of course exercise positively impacts all of those and, you know, lung function and heart function, separate from cardiovascular, like, you know, fighting, absolutely exercise does. There's positive, there's a lot of data about how exercise positively impacts your heart and it reduces your risk of cardiovascular disease of stroke and all of those things. But I mean, you, you were the biggest proponent of this. A lot of literature that came out pretty quickly after COVID was a thing, COVID-19 was a thing, found that I think the word they used was exercise substantially impacts your ability to like it it improves your comp the rate of complications and it like pretty much people who who exercise it greatly reduce their risk of hospitalization so why is that it's because you've got all of these things that we're talking about but improved lung function and, and improved heart function um especially when we're talking about respiratory illness so there's all if even if you just Google like exercise and COVID-19, you'll see quite a few like there's a lot of literature. There's a lot of information and it all shows that like exercise keeps you out of the hospital. Exercise gives you improved outcomes. Exercise, you know, improves your risk of getting, you know, complications from COVID-19. So it's just like it's just con like we have uh, like so much data about that. And that to me should be super compelling. but. You know, I don't really hear much about it except from you, Sean. Um, <laughs> uh, anxiety and depression. I think that this is another big one that a lot of people like. People like therapy is great, you know, and, and everybody should be in therapy. But 
some of the best therapy that you can do is having like a daily exercise routine. And I think that we need to see exercise as it, it's I think this is two part. A lot of times exercise is our time. We're not, you know, for, that's what it is for me. It's my time in the morning. It's my time. I think about a lot of stuff and I process through a lot of stuff and I'm thinking about how I want to set up my day and I'm, you know, I'm getting that those endorphins. I, it's it's a, an incredible way like exercise from a scientific perspective greatly reduces depression and anxiety. That's awesome. But like it sets your day up for success. Like think about what what you could do if you weren't as anxious or weren't as worried throughout the day. Um, and so that's like a real life application that I think so many women in particular we deal with. You know, I think a lot of women deal with worry and depression and anxiety. And just by exercising, you're not only just kind of processing through the things, doing the stress management things, taking a little bit of time for yourself. You're also impacting the rest of your day. Yeah. Um, insulin sensitivity. I know a lot of, you know, you probably talk about insulin and insulin sensitivity and cortisol and all of that stuff. Um, one of the things that I find really interesting is exercise positively improves our ability to like manage our blood sugar. So it makes us more insulin sensitive. And there is some research that a lot of research shows that our insulin sensitivity, our insulin sensitivity is improved up to like 16 hours after we work out. Um, so again, a lot of people think about exercise in terms of what is it doing for me right now? But a lot of times exercise, and this is why strength training is like one of my favorite things and why I always prioritize it. Strength training has this profound impact where you, it really impacts you after the work up to like a day after the workout is complete. There's something called EPOC, which is excess post exercise oxygen consumption. It's essentially the rate at which your body is consuming oxygen after you work out. And because you have this elevated need for oxygen, your body therefore has your, your metabolism's working faster and harder. You, your heart rate's up a little bit, your body temperature's up a little bit. And so your body's trying to bring you back down to homeostasis. And so your insulin, you're more insulin sensitive, your metabolism's still going, you're still burning energy and calories. And all of that is while you're not working out. That's, <laughs> that's like the day after, which is amazing. Um, perhaps my favorite thing, because, you know, I've been seeing this a lot more and this is where I'll, I'll try to stop it. So you can, <laughs> so I'm not talking the whole time, but bone density, mm, yeah. osteoporosis and osteopenia is becoming much more of an issue for women. And it's something, you know, my grandma, she, she had weak bones, she fell and broke her hip and that's ultimately how she died even though she was healthy and strong and lived on a farm and was in her community and all the things. And so a, it's, it's actually a cause of death for a lot of people. And we see a lot of women now, young women in their 30s, dealing with osteopenia, which is, you know, the progression or right before you get to osteoporosis. Bone density strength training does amazing things for bone density. You have essentially what you're doing and how you want to like remineralize bone a lot of people think you just take calcium supplementation or you, you know, you pop a calcium pill. That would be like saying, I'm going to eat protein and my muscles are going to get bigger because you actually have to provide some sort of, you know, load for your body to actually use the calcium and then deposit it into bone. So what you're doing with exercise and strength training is you're providing that load, just like you are with your muscles. You're providing that load to your bone. 
And then, then your body says, okay, I'm going to start, you know, given that the minerals are there, the nutrients are there, your body then starts to remineralize your bone. So there's a lot of research that shows, you know, exercise improves bone density. It, redu it reduces the amount of bone loss, um, which I think is, is really significant considering, you know, we put a lot, yeah, yeah, a lot of people die from cardiovascular disease and a lot of people have chronic illnesses, but osteoporosis and osteopenia, I think is going to get progressively worse for our society, specifically for our generation. If we're not actually taking into account things like we need to be strength training in order to, to maintain our, our bones and our bone density. Like when I work out, I'm not thinking, what, what am I doing for myself today? I'm, I'm working out for <laughs> my aging body. What do I want to be when I'm 50 and 60 and 70? Like, how do I want my body to function? That's what I'm thinking about when I'm when I'm exercising and moving today, because ultimately, like I, I want to have longevity. That's the real world you know, application for me is not just how's it making my cellulite look today or whatever, you know, like is my love handle still there? It's it's is my body going to be able to function and move and I'm going to be able to sit up, you know, squat down and stand up when I'm 70. So, yeah, yeah. You know, there's this movement taking place right now to get joint conditions kind of reclassified, like what happened with Alzheimer's being labeled as type three diabetes is kind of insulin resistance taking place in the brain. But there's like insulin resistance in the joints, for example. And one of the big key drivers, you just said it, exercise, one of the primary tenants, this is far above changing your body composition. It improves assimilation dramatically. It increases cellular assimilation, the assimilation of your, you know, into your bones, for example. And this is one of the things that really helped me to change my health like 20 years ago was this, this study that was done on racehorses, which mm. this is like a billion dollar industry. I'm watching Yellowstone right now. Have you seen Yellowstone, by the way? I, yes, I started watching it. Yeah. All right. So we're, we're dabbling in, in the horses. And so, you know, I'm checking out the, all this stuff. And, I'm, and I thought about this study again, because if a horse breaks a bone, that can be hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars of loss. And so they were trying to experiment and find ways to increase their bone density. And so they had a control group that they did nothing with the horses. And then they had the study group that they gave the horses supplements, like, you know, some of these nutrients that are known to increase bone density. And that it did help some to increase their bone density. But then they had another group of horses that they gave them this supplementation and walked the horses regularly. And they had an even higher increase in their bone density than the other groups, mm. right? So that's the key there is assimilation. So you might be spending all this money on these fancy pants supplements and eating this organic food. Are you actually getting the nutrition from it if you're not exercising? And so thank you so much for going through all these things. These are all these re really remarkable benefits from exercise that if you're just looking at the scale as a result of your exercise, you could be like, damn you scale, you know, yeah. just be pissed off and miss the fact that you're radically improving your health in so many different ways. But also, again, I love the fact that you said multiple times, it's not about the scale not being a metric that we can utilize, but it's in our culture. It's become something that's been obsessive and taking a priority in our, in our perception of, are we healthy or not? Are we fit or not? Right? When in, and I thought about this while you were talking, our weight might have a range, maybe a 20 pound range or 30 pound range where we are still remarkably healthy and functional. You know, our, our libido, our heart health, our cognitive performance, 
all of those things are firing on all cylinders. And maybe if we're even dipping too low in, in that range, we're not as cognitive, our memory isn't as good or our reaction time or whatever the case might be. But having that grace where we have this spectrum of health when it comes to the weight versus like, I need to have this number on the scale or I'm not worthy. That's really the problem. And so, man, thank you so much for sharing this. Yeah. And I'll just say, I'll say one thing because I feel like this will be really powerful for women. And a lot of what, like, because a lot of women are like, well, how do I stop? Then like, if, if I'm, if I'm using the scale as a marker and I'm upset, how do I not, how do I become un unobsessed? How do I let it go? Like if, if I'm obsessed with it, like I can't, I can't just let it go. And to summarize what you just said is you can be healthy at a variety of weights, period. So you, what you have to do is un, basically kind of like, I always think of like a, a DNA, you know, you have to unravel some of those lies and, you know, myths about health and weight and all those things. You've got to unravel them first, which is like, you know, with conversations like this. And then you actually have to take, you know, you have to put on new truths. You have to put, and these are things that you, that are proven in the literature. It's not just mumbo jumbo. It's, you can be healthy at a variety of weights. Your health is not a weight, nor is your happiness. Like you don't all of a sudden become healthy and happy at a specific size. I can tell you that because like I spent my life trying to get to a certain size. And when I got there, it wasn't good enough. So that's, you know, one of those really powerful things that you can just keep repeating to yourself until you believe it because you will eventually believe it. Mm, I love it. Unravel and then <laughs> you sew up your own new thing. Right. You know, this is awesome. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. If you want a surefire way to damage your microbiome, then look no further than that dirty S word, sugar. Data publishing advances in nutrition uncovered that excess sugar creates a clear pro-inflammatory environment in our gut. There's even recent data published by scientists at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center showing that mice who were fed diets high in sugar developed worse colitis this pro-inflammatory, very, very detrimental inflammatory bowel disease. And the researchers examined their large intestine and found that more of the bacteria that can damage the gut's protective mucus layer was driven by the increase in sugar consumption. Another study cited in Science Translational Medicine describes how sugar is likely making negative alterations to our gut bacteria. Again, having healthy, robust amounts of probiotic-friendly flora controlling our system and keeping in check the opportunistic pathogenic bacteria is key for all manner of health and wellness, from helping to reduce our risk of diabetes and obesity to reducing our risk of autoimmune conditions. As it stands right now, the average American consumes about 100 pounds of sugar annually, mostly in the form of added sugars. but what can we do to pivot from this? In fact, there's a sweetener that not only doesn't damage our gut health, it actually improves it. A recent study published in Food Quality and Safety found that in addition to having natural antibacterial effects against pathogenic bacteria, raw honey is able to improve overall gut microbial balance. How sweet it is when we're talking about the benefits of honey, long renowned, for its antimicrobial impact. We're talking about the external applications, but it has these internal applications as well. But the key here is making sure that your honey is not coming along with pesticides and heavy metals and all these other things that are common in bee products today. 
we want to make sure that we're dedicated to sustainable beekeeping as well. And this is why my honey that I utilize that's in my cabinet right now is bee-powered superfood honey from Beekeepers Naturals. Go to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model and you get 25% off taken off automatically at checkout. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S naturals.com forward slash model for 25% off. They do third-party testing for over 70 plus pesticide residues for heavy metals and negative bacteria like E. coli and salmonella to make sure that you're not getting any nefarious things along with your healing, delicious superfood honey. Again, go to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model for 25% off. Now, back to the show. I, I want to pivot to this controversial statement that sometimes the best form of, of, of health practice or self-care is skipping a workout. Mm. Why is that? Yeah. Um, so I think in our culture, we have, you know, fitness is really interesting. They like to be super intense. And there was a, you know, Fitspo going around when Pinterest came online. And still to this day, you know, it's the same thing. There's still Fitspo. There's still, we still have influencers. You still got all this garbage in your newsfeed, which is essentially like, never miss a Monday. And if you have this, this plan, that's, you need to do that plan. Sometimes you may have a really crappy night of sleep. Maybe you, your kid is sick. Maybe you just are really tired and your body is telling you, wow, I'm feeling extra fatigued today. Or gosh, my, you know, like mentally and cognitively, like I'm not there. Something's off. Or maybe you just had a really sucky day at work or, you know, you're struggling with something with your kid or whatever, like life, life, right? This is every day. The healthiest way that you can support your body is sometimes to take off, skip that workout. You, that workout may not, exercise is stress, okay? So we have to really, again, rethink about or, or reshape our thoughts around what is exercise. Exercise has these profound health benefits. Awesome, right? But you are exposing your body to stress. And if you are under chronic stress, it's only going to add fuel to the flame. So when, you know, having this intuition and having a healthy relationship with your body and with exercise is being able to say, okay, I'm off. I'm not sleeping. I'm not feeling good. I need to take that, ex that, that workout out of the picture. I need to skip tomorrow. And doing whatever it is that you need to do to bring your body health, whether that's sleeping in, whether that's getting up and just going for a walk outside in nature, you know, and getting the sun, whether that's meditating, taking some extra time for prayer so that you can have balance with your body and not just be thinking, oh, but I got to do that workout. I got to expose my body to that. What, what, what I'm thinking is I've got to expose my body to that stress. That's really what you're saying. And so you've got to be able to say my body can't handle the stress today and take it off. And subsequently, then you can come back the next day and be stronger. And a lot of times I get the question, well, how do I know what to prioritize? Prioritize the strength training, okay? That's all I'm gonna say. If you have to skip a day and it's a strength day and you your your plan is to do you know high intensity intervals the next day, do your strength training that day, the next day that you have the opportunity. If you gotta take two days off, take two days off. Make it so that when it's time to come, you know when when you're ready to work out, you're you're able to apply yourself in that workout and feel really good and energized from it. If you do a workout and you feel 
totally gassed and you're exhausted and you can't really get up from the floor and then you got a twinge in your knee later that day, that's a good sign that you pushed it too much. You don't need to force fitness adaptations because you. the truth is you can't really stop it. If you're doing slow progressions and you're slowly building, your body will respond appropriately. But when you when you expose your body to too much, that's when we start to see this rocky relationship of, um, you know, I'm injured or oh, I've got my my elbows hurting or oh, I'm not sleeping good or oh, my motivation is tanking that. And that's what I want to prevent people from getting into, which is was my life for so long is don't don't let yourself get into that. Stop, you know, have this healthy relationship where you can expose your body to the appropriate amount of stress so that you can actually see the health benefits from exercise. Yes, yes. If you're implementing the right stimulus, we're, we're just talking about strength training here, and you're pushing the right buttons, the adaptation, the full adaptation can take several weeks, not just mm-hmm. even days to like, I'm not sore anymore. Like, so if you're miss, you know, if you decide to take a day off for additional recovery, and think that you're missing out because you got this moniker of no days off, your body is still adapting. If you're, again, leveraging those right points, and that's part of the issue because being able to pivot, right? So because I was one of those guys where, you know, again, no days off, I, I got to travel, I'm speaking at this place. I, I, I'm a little embarrassed to say this. I'm that, I was working out in the airport. I'd find a little <laughs> corner somewhere and I'm over there doing lunges and push-ups and handstand yeah. push-ups, all the things. And I'm like, I got to get this workout in. I got to get this work rather than like, you know what? This is even a stressor for me going up in this damn plane and the radiation and all the things like, and I'm walking, but now I'm like, I'm, I'm going to walk. I'm walking through the airport, doing this whole thing with this, with this luggage. When I get to the location, I'll go for a walk. I'll get grounded, get some fresh air, get some sunlight if at all possible, make sure that I'm hydrated. I start stacking conditions to do other things and just think that exercise is the end all be all and i don't want to miss a day of this stimulation and so even coming back from that trip i mentioned earlier like in that day that travel day i'm not trying to find a place that i could fit in a workout i'm just going to come in reset make sure that i can get back you know i'm changing time zones let me try to optimize my sleep here and then i can go the next day and maybe i can do some strength training and push it a little bit or i might just go for a long walk the next day or hike Mm -hmm. now I'm paying more attention to my to my body's feedback and understanding where should I position things instead of getting a shitty workout and then driving a deeper hole. Because that's kind of what happens is right. it's like stress is like you're digging a hole, but you also need to fill that hole back up, mm-hmm. you know? So that's that's really the the balance. And over time, you start to really create a very powerful foundation. Or you're just gonna keep continuing to dig a hole that you could just jump in and bury yourself. Yeah, I've definitely been buried before, Sean. <laughs> definitely been buried. And speaking of this, you know, because you you mentioned this a little bit, and I'll just throw this, we'll put this study up for people that are watching the video version. But, you know, we're pretty close to Kaiser Permanente here in LA. And they were there's so many studies on this now, it's absurd. It's just like, it's kind of disrespectful to me at this point, because I've been talking about it since the very beginning. But Kaiser Permanente, and they're using such huge data sets, tens of thousands of people, not like 60 people in a drug trial, right? Mm -hmm. So this was almost 50,000 people, and they looked at their data of their exercise habits prior to contracting SARS-CoV-2, right? And they found that people who, they looked at people who regularly exercise versus people who were sedentary. 
And the people who regularly exercise versus the people who were sedentary, the sedentary folks had a two and a half times higher risk of dying from this particular virus, right? Not just one time and a half, two and a half times. It's very significant. And since then, more data's come out looking at specific forms of exercise, like what were people doing? Is it aerobic exercise? Is it strength training? And come to find out, aha, it's both. Both. <laughs> Doing both, having both implements creates the right. best outcomes, reduce, dramatically reducing your risk of infection, reducing your risk of hospitalization, and dramatically reducing your risk of death. When you have a protocol that includes mo- both of those inputs that, again, our genes expect us to do. Our genes expect us to have load-bearing movements, and our genes expect us to have, car- quote, cardiovascular movements, which is really just getting our, our blood pumping and getting our heart doing some, some work and just moving in the world. One of the best forms of cardio that's not talked about enough is simply just going for a walk, mm. you know, and getting that biological feedback. So I just wanted to point that out. And also, yeah. I want to ask you about this because you said this word, you said the C word, <laughs> Noel, when you were right. talking, you said cellulite, <laughs> all right? There's a big stigma behind cellulite we got to talk about this yeah yeah it's really it's one of those things that is so normal about the female body and men get it too it's so normal about our bodies it's it's the way our skin looks and women in particular are more prone to it for a variety of reasons which we'll which i'll get into in a second but really what's happened is the diet and the fitness industry has made it a marketing tactic. That's what it is. Everybody's got it. If if they can make you feel shame for having it, you're going to want to do anything you can do to get rid of it. Buy a cream, do a 12-week cellulite reducing program, which by the way, you can't like spot reduce cellulite. It's just not, it's not, it's not actually a thing. Uh, Whatever, you know, there's lymphatic massage, all the, you know, lymphatic flow, improving lymphatic flow, improving collagen in your skin, like all of those things, those are good things. If you want to do that, great. But your cellulite is not a problem. It's not a problem you need to solve. It's not a problem that you need to feel shame about if you have it. Women have it in particular because of how our connective tissue is formed. So if you were to look at like our skin, our our connective tissue is vertical, whereas with men, it's like more of like an X. Also, women have really actually thinner, more sensitive skin than men. Men tend to have thicker skin and their skin is actually more oily, which is why men don't get uh, as wrinkles as much as women. Fun fact. But because men have thicker skin and women have thinner skin and because of estrogen and our hormones, we tend to hold weight more at, at our thighs and our hips. Like we're just more, you're just going to see it more on, on the female body. That's not a bad thing. Again, it's not a problem. You don't need to feel shame about it. You can, of course, do things that you want to do, supplement with collagen or improve lymphatic flow. Like there's a lot of recommendations, but what I have seen so much in the last, you know, I would say probably five to 10 years, I I really do blame social media on a lot Mm. of things, but really in social media, it's become this thing, you know, everybody refers to it as unsightly cellulite. And so we've kind of created this stigma uh, that if you have cellulite, somehow you're doing something wrong or you're, you've got too, quote unquote, too much fat on your body. And it's just a load of, of bullshit, to be quite honest. Like there is nothing wrong with it. It's not associated with any higher risks. Uh, you know, it's not like 
you have a higher risk of any health condition, anything like that. It's just purely cosmetic. And if it's not a problem to you, then it's not a problem. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for talking about this because, again, you just said it. It's throwing this marketing term on the front of it unsightly. Mm -hmm. And instead of it being natural, like this is not some kind of abnormality with the female body or with bodies in general. This is just one of those things. And also you mentioned with women tend to carry significantly more subcutaneous fat, right? Which is one of the reasons, ironically, the women tend to live longer than men <laughs> is the subcutaneous fat versus visceral fat that men have more of a tendency towards, right? So it's this mm -hmm. protective mechanism. And it's also a part of our nervous system right? Our skin is like that uh, outside association with the world. And also it's sending data. Like there's so much data transport taking place right. and information transferring throughout the body. And as you mentioned, also women tend to be more sensitive to stress. Like mm -hmm. we can go on and on. There, there are biological, amazing reasons for this, but then we see the dimples and we're like, ah, you're broken. <laughs> no, this just, it's just not like that. And, right. you know, with this conversation, but also the same thing with stretch marks, you know, like these natural things that we're talking about the vast majority of people have these mm -hmm. issues, even incredibly fit people. You might see a, a woman on, on social media who's got, you know, 18% body fat, incredibly low body fat for a woman. And she's got stretch marks and she's trying to hide it with the positioning, with the lighting, the whole mm -hmm. thing. You know, she's like, you know, got the, the tiger stripes, right? And she's just mm -hmm. like, I don't want people to see this and think that I'm not fit. Right. When in reality, you know, I think about <laughs> the comedian Cat Williams. He was like, if you got stretch marks, all that means is you were big and got little or you were little and got big. That's it. <laughs> you know, it's just the, 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 the body adapting and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. That's part of the problem is being led to believe that our bodies are supposed to be one way. Now, right. there's this movement taking place, and this I want to ask you about this, towards uh, body acceptance, mm -hmm. which is wonderful. It has a wonderful foundational tenet to it and a wonderful premise. However, I, I think that what can get lost is our bodies don't have to be some prototypical, superficial, cookie-cutter way. However, we do need to strive for health and to support health because your acceptance of your, of your body and maybe you're in a state now where you're, if you're using a scale, you're hundred pounds overweight and you're insulin resistant and you are expressing early symptoms of Alzheimer's and, the, and, 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 and we have to have both is my, is my belief. So I just want to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, I think that's important. I'm at the position right now where, you know, whatever you want to do with your body is your business. So yeah. if you, if All you, right. <laughs> we got to pause, I got to clap. We got to pause. <laughs> All right. Like, okay, continue. If, if you want to get healthier, awesome. You do that. If you don't and you're okay with and, and that's what you want to do with your life right now, great. You do that too. I think body acceptance is a really important piece for women in particular because we've been told for so long to hate our bodies and to make changes from a place of hate, from a place of shame. And so we're now we're able to kind of reverse that. Um, you know, narrative and say, okay, I accept my body. I don't have to hate it. I don't have to think, you know, I can, I can see my body outside of a size or a shape or what it looks like. Like, let's, let's just change the conversation away from, from looks for a second. Like we, there's so many other things that you can use to evaluate yourself. Like even with my daughter, I'm, I'm really practicing with her 
if you know, oh, you're so cute. You've got a little like my, you know, unnamed people like to come in and say, look at her little waist. And oh, she's already got abs. And I'm like, cut it. Because mm. I don't want her to think that her body is just about what she looks like. I want her to think about it and her as a whole being, yeah. uh, you know, what she, what, how, how she moves and what she's able to do and what her body does and that she's a kind person and she takes care of others and that she serves others. Like, I want her to see herself. I don't, that's not how I want her to define herself. And so I think that a lot of the, this body acceptance movement is let's stop focusing so much on the number on the scale and our pant size embrace where we're at right now and start taking care of ourselves if if that's what you want to do taking care of ourselves and our health from a place of i really appreciate that my body's on my side and that it's fighting for me because it is even if you don't feel like it is it is and so i'm going to work with myself i'm going to stop beating myself up and hating my body just because it doesn't look like what society says it should look like and start approaching health from that place which is a much more you know mentally emotionally physically healthier place as opposed to I can't accept myself. I hate myself. I need to make changes. I don't fit the mold. So, yeah. Uh, thank you. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So another thing that you mentioned just throughout our conversation, but I want to circle back to it because it's so powerful, so important. You mentioned how during a certain phase of the cycle of a period that the metabolism changes and the caloric expenditure even can change based on what time of the month it is for mm-hmm. women. So let's talk about not just our po- possibly are some dietary changes that might take place, but what about exercise? Could our ec- exercise implements at certain times of the month be kind of uh, supportive or even detracting depending on where people are in their cycle? Yeah, this is another really big piece. I think when you're talking about taking care of yourself and and your own body for women our cycle is a vital sign and what what we're feeling and how we're responding and how our body is responding to our cycle so are you are you getting a ton of symptoms do you have cramps are you do you have low energy at certain points like we've got to take that into account like how long is your cycle is it arriving on time like is it short is it irregular all of those things we be get we get to like learn more about and pay more attention to when we're not just focused on the scale, because when we're focused on the scale, a lot of times that results in irregular periods, loss of period, all that, you know, more stress, all that stuff. So really fascinating stuff. The women, women, we all have, you know, something called an infradian rhythm. Men, men typically go by a circadian rhythm, a 24 hour clock. Women, we have, let's just say a four, you know, it varies, but it's about a four week cycle and our hormones are changing in, you know, every month. And our physiology changes every single month. I became more aware of this about 10 years ago when I was training for a marathon when I thought I had to run to be fit. Now I don't. But I was training for a marathon and I was noticing that my tempo runs at when I, I had them scheduled at a very specific point. And anytime I would do that like harder tempo run that was longer, it was, sorry, it was a longer tempo run is what it was. And I would get these horrible cramps during those runs and i would sit and look at my calendar and i was like oh i keep scheduling these like right before i'm about to start my period so it became aware to me i i kind of need to like focus maybe i need to like plan my workouts around my my cycle and see how that works out and it turns out we do have a li- we don't have a ton but we do have 
some literature that talks about how a woman's body changes and her physiology changes and how exercise relates to that. So two main phases, follicular, you ovulate, then your luteal phase. In the first half of your cycle, and this is now what I do, your body is, your estrogen is increasing. It peaks right when you ovulate. And ovulation, I think a lot of women will know your libido increases. You tend to have more energy. You just have a little bit more zest for life. And that's thanks to estrogen. Also during that time, that is a prime time to do high intensity workouts and to do your, you know, your hardest efforts. If you want a PR, that's when you, that's when you do it. Your body, your core temperature is a little bit reduced. You're actually also more insulin sensitive. So you're able to use glucose better. After you ovulate, something happens where your estrogen goes down, progesterone goes up. Interestingly enough, progesterone increases our core body temperature. So some research actually shows, again, very small amount of research. So it's not like anything super conclusive, but it's there that women's time to fatigue is reduced during the second half of the cycle in exercise efforts because of progesterone, because of that raised core body temperature. Um, And another thing that happens, the second thing which we mentioned before is your metabolism actually increases because your core body temperature increases. So does your metabolism and the rate at which you're burning calories. So you could burn anywhere from, I think it was like, you know, three to 400 calories, the average woman based on the average woman's calorie intake, you can burn up to 400 calories more per day in those few days before your cycle begins when progesterone is at its highest. So we've got to be, you know, Understanding the science of this is saying, okay, if I feel a little hungrier, that's okay. I can support my body. And if I'm feeling like I can't push it right now and I need to schedule a few days of extra rest or even better, already have pre-planned a down week, you know, three weeks of you build, you peak, maybe you do some aerobic efforts. And then the fourth week, you're chilling, you're doing more rest, you're walking, you're doing whatever you want, Pilates or bar you know, whatever it is, lower intensity stuff, you can do that in that fourth week as you, right before you start your period and maybe that first day or two and go with your flow as opposed to constantly trying to fight it and and fighting your physiology. So personally, I love it. I do keep it in mind. Is it something that you have to be super like rigid about and stress about? No, that would defeat the purpose. But it's something to add to your toolbox. It's something to be a little bit more intuitive with and just say, I'm not feeling it today. There's a reason why. And that's okay. You don't have to fight it. Uh, This is some of the best information right here because it's getting us back to listening to our bodies, paying attention to the things that are real and, and really timeless about us, about humanity versus these very strange um, kind of uh, logical fallacies, right? Mm -hmm. That like, calorie intake should be a certain thing, for example. This completely ignores the fact that your body adjusts to different times of even the different times of the month to its caloric expenditure, right? So these are epicaloric controllers. So these are things that control what calories do in your body versus calories controlling your life, right? Life is controlling calories and how your body associates with them. And one of those primary controllers is what's happening with your brain because your brain is even helping to regulate those releases, you know, with the different hormones. And, you know, a lot of that is taking place in that master gland, the hypothalamus, right? It's the integration of your endocrine system and your nervous system together. And it's also like that internal thermostat, adjusting your core body temperature is happening there. 
You know, one of the biggest issues today that's just skyrocketing in incidents that's not really being talked about is hypothalamic inflammation. One of the hmm. biggest drivers of that is obesity, right? Venturing into a place where you're carrying an excessive amount of body fat and it contributing to inflammation in our brain. Again, if we're looking at actually getting ourselves healthy, we need to talk about getting our brains healthy. What are some of the hmm. things that do that? Movement, not for the purpose of changing the scale, but just getting your brain healthier, right? Getting access to natural sunlight, natural light exposure and fresh air, you know, and also managing stress. Oh my God. The hypothalamus, like that's another, that's a master gland that's associating with the stress in your life. That's where all your stress load is going. And so if we're, if we're not properly associating and honoring the stress in our lives, guess what's going to happen? It's going to throw off the whole system. And yet here we are trying to manage our calories like we're a damn robot. And we are not, we're anything but that. And so this is, again, I, you're so amazing. This information is so empowering and just so logical, but I just think that not enough people have access to it. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom. And you have an amazing podcast. Can you let everybody know about your, your podcast and also where they can follow you on Instagram because you're one of the people that I follow. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that. Um, so my podcast is called the well-fed women podcast, and we've been doing it for maybe seven years. I have a co-host, but, um, as she, she attends occasionally and I do interviews. I've had Sean, I've had you on twice and it was some of my best episodes, not going to lie. I get the best feedback about my episodes when you're on people, oh, you and Sean, man, they're just too, like, you guys are awesome. So I always appreciate when I get to have you on mine too. And my Instagram is coconuts and kettlebells all spelled out. It's a lot of letters. So I'll let you go search it. And my website is coconutsandkettlebells.com. Which is also parlaying into your amazing cookbook. Yes. By the way. Yeah. yeah so people can I do love, up. I do love some recipes. So yeah, I love food. Yes. <laughs> yes. And that's another thing too, with your IG, you get to see all these delicious, all this deliciousness. Yeah. So that's another place that we, we connect because mm -hmm. man, like if people that are out there telling you to eat, to live, don't live to eat, mm -mm. I'm, I'm coming with the stiff arm. I'm Heisman trophying <laughs> that yeah. sentiment because that's just not for me. You mm -hmm. know, like food is something, food tastes good, real mm -hmm. food. It tastes good because it's one of those biological associations that's driving us to eat those foods. Right. Yes. And it's a right. part of life. It's a part of this enjoyment. It's a part of human connection, right? It's a part of our, our human experience to enjoy food. Now, what we are exposed to today is a lot of crazy stuff. You know, like 10,000 years ago, we couldn't have seen a ding dong coming. Like we had no <laughs> idea <laughs> that right. that was coming down the pike. You know, a Pop-Tart was not something that even made sense at the time, right? right? But even today, it still doesn't really make sense. Like where the hell mm. does this Pop-Tart come from? Like there's no, there's no origin story from it. It's just like right. dropped here by some evil alien, you know, into your toaster. <laughs> like the, it's such a crazy experience. But anyway, so make sure to check out uh, Well-Fed Women and also follow you on Instagram. And again, I appreciate you so much for hanging out with me. And Thank you, Sean. Um, yeah, I can't wait to do this again. Yeah. Awesome. Noel Tar, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. Please share this one out with your friends and family. You can take a screenshot and share this on social media and tag me. I'm at Sean Model and tag Noel at Coconuts and Kettlebells. 
All right. And let her know what you thought about this episode as well. Show her some love. And of course, you could send this directly from the podcast app that you are listening on, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, you name it. We're here. We're out here in these podcast streets. And I appreciate you so much. We've got some epic shows coming your way very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.